Welcome to Hollywood 2.0. This is Peter Katz. My co-host Rich Silverman couldn't make it today, so you just got me. In the news, the horror film The Devil Inside, with only a budget of $1 million, cleaned up at the box office. So I like the idea of Hollywood financing micro-budget film slates. So you can make 10 horror films. If nine of them don't work, one can make up for all the losers. And you can test screen one film against another film. And the one that tests the best, you put into theaters. And the other projects, they could go VOD and straight to DVD. Kind of like A-B testing for films. And our guest today, game developer extraordinaire and friend, Ralph Barbagello knows a thing or two about A-B testing. Twin sisters getting wasted, so they both are down. It's going down, thought I told you, man. If you're trying to party, let me see you. A consultant on the programming, design, and deployment of mobile and social games, as well as published a lot of mobile games in the pre-iPhone era since I started doing my, uh, before I started doing my consulting stuff. And uh, all-around general uh, loudmouth about various subjects related to this stuff. All right. What's your origin story? <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I don't want to bore people, but basically, uh, you know, I, uh, I started making, I was making so-called real games, you know, like PlayStation games and uh, PC games as a programmer. Actually, before that, I was actually a designer, uh, at, uh, Neversoft before they became super famous for Tony Hawk. And, uh, at, uh, then I decided to finish my computer science degree and do programming. And then about 10 years ago, uh, I was like, you know, I think there's going to be something in these cell phone games. I think they're going to blow up. So I quit my job where I was programming some PlayStation 2 fighting game, doing some special effects code on it and stuff, and started making games for, like, crappy little feature phones, you know? It's almost like people almost don't remember them anymore, but there was a time before the iPhone, and back then you could charge, like, eight bucks for a crappy solitaire game, and, you know, I still get checks today from those games that people subscribe to that still have not upgraded their phone. And, uh... Then around like 2007 or so, kind of dawned on me that you know the whole social gaming revolution was upon us. So I uh, started looking at mo uh, web games and then Facebook games, and I've been doing some consulting and I've built a few games f for those platforms since then. And uh, but now I'm back into mobile because um, with you know over the past couple of years with in-app purchases for iPhone, you're able to make a lot of you know good recurring revenue on on mobile games again. So uh, you know. It's come full circle, I guess. What are some of your eureka moments where you're like, holy shit, there's an, there's an opportunity here. Like, what, oh, well, do you remember those specifically? Oh, yeah. I'll, tell you, I'll tell you specifically. So this is all prehistory, probably important to nobody. But like 10 years ago, so when I first started making mobile games, 10 years ago, there were two platforms. There was Brew, which is made by Qualcomm, and there was Java from Sun. And at the time... Everybody was saying, oh, well, Java's a standard, and so, of course, it's a standard, so that's what you should be developing on. But I visited Qualcomm because uh, I, had, I had seen a demo of a brew game at E3 back in, like, 2001 or so. And uh, I believe I visited Qualcomm or I talked to somebody there, and they showed me, you know, I didn't care about the technical aspects of the platform because what they showed me was, hey, we have – the ability to charge users directly to their phone bill for a game that you deliver on the phone. And that was my eureka moment. I was like, wow, you mean like you can bill somebody for this game and it's totally seamless. The person just clicks on the phone, you know, clicks the buy button and they buy the app. Back then they weren't called apps, whatever they were called. And they said, yeah, 
And Java had nothing like that. Java was just a programming environment. But Qualcomm had the ability to charge users. So when I saw that you could actually charge people for stuff, I didn't care if the platform was technically not as good as Java or hard to develop on. It didn't matter because I knew that I could charge people for stuff and make money. So I would deal with whatever obstacles uh, you had to go through to do that. And it ended up paying off at the time. It brew was not on a lot of phones, but you could make a lot of money because you could have access to a lot more people who would actually pay for stuff. Was it a similar experience with social games? Uh, not really, because social games was weird. Basically, what happened to me was, um, I guess I kind of had a eureka moment. I was back, so back before the iPhone, again, in prehistory, uh, you used to have to go take your games, whatever you had, whatever you were trying to make, and you had to go visit people at Verizon or AT&T or whatever with your so-called roadmap. And you had to beg, plead, or whatever negotiate, quote-unquote, to get your content on the deck because they controlled the gate. They controlled what games and what apps went on the phones. And I remember just, you know, the stuff I had to do just to try to get somebody on the phone to try to talk to them about my roadmap, what I was going to do, you know, it took so much time and effort. And around 2007, I met this VC who showed me Club Penguin. It was like 2007, so right before they got bought out. And he was saying how, many, how much money these guys were making and they were just putting stuff on the web and they didn't have to answer to anybody. And, uh, you know, I just thought, wow, you know, a lot of these companies like Adventure Quest and Sherwood Dungeon as two examples of web games at the time, you know, had started around the same time I did, except they were making stuff on the web where they didn't have to have a gate. They built their own web presence. They were making their own money. And I just thought, Wow, that's a that's a good way to make some money. I, you know, getting rid of the gate, uh, which has its own set of challenges. And around that time as well, the Facebook API came out at the same time. But it was kind of unclear at that time how to make money on Facebook. It was a you know it was a platform, but nobody really knew what to do with it at the time, uh, except a few companies that are now you know like guys like Zynga nailed it from day one. But um, you know, so that there wasn't quite a eureka moment as far as the Facebook platform and the social gaming platform, but it was a eureka moment for me in that the web and, and sort of a gateless ecosystem gave you a lot more freedom to innovate and to, and to find a business model. Looking into the future, would you bet on Zynga? Um, well, it's a, it's a business. It's a real business. Uh, as far as their stock is concerned, I mean, it's dropped. Like right now, today, it's, I think it's at eight something. Like it's well below its IPO uh, price. So I don't know if I would bet on Zynga as far as putting my own money into the stock at this point, but the business as a whole, I mean, it's a legitimate business. It's kind of funny. People are still skeptical of it, even though Zynga's been making tons of money on this business model for, since 2007. Uh, you know, I was reading an article today where they were saying, oh, you know, uh, their stock price dipped today because some analyst released a report that said that they make money from only, you know, 2% of their customers. Well, that's the business model. That's the freemium business model. It's not a surprise to anybody. Uh, that seems weird to people maybe outside of the industry. And even in games, it seems weird to people who don't make social games or don't make freemium games. But that, I don't think that's a fad. I mean, I think that we're seeing a drastic change in the way people want to consume games. Whether Zynga can continue to grow, I'm not sure. But I think that I don't think they're a, a fad as a business. I think that people want to consume content the way they're delivering it. So it's a healthy business as long as you have a few big spenders. Yeah, I mean, but it's weird because it, it changes so much. So 
I mean, social games and whatever you want to call them, whatever form they might take six months from now, two years from now. I mean, if you look at if you look at if you look at the games Zing was putting out in 2007, 2008, I mean, they're nothing like the games they're putting out today, uh, although they do share some similar monetization strategies, but the production values are different and such. So that's not to say that things aren't going to change radically because the game industry in just the past five years has changed radically. When you when you look at the introduction of the iPhone, which has basically completely disrupted the entire game industry, and of course the iPad and Zynga, I think I think basically Apple, Zynga, and Valve with Steam are like the three most influential companies in games over the past five years that have kind of and in blizzard with world of warcraft as well kind of like revolutionized the way games are played and the way games are sold have you had one of those moments with the tablet the special eureka oh my god i gotta get into this market well you know i've you know when the when they first announced the ipad i was kind of skeptical a couple years ago i was like what the well it's I think it looks like a giant iPhone or giant iPod Touch. But then so many people bought it, the first one, when it came out. I just had to buy one just to see what was going on. Uh, plus, I'd buy all gadgets, but that was my excuse at the time. And, you know, when I started actually using the iPad and living as an iPad user, I could totally understand the appeal of it. And I still don't use an iPad at least for like for gaming purposes, like as a primary device. But um, after using it for a while, it took me. There wasn't. It took me gradual couple months of using it and trying to integrate it to my daily routine to really appreciate it. And then I started talking to a bunch of uh, people that I knew that were doing startups and stuff. And a lot of them were talking about the data they were seeing was that tablet users actually had different consumption habits than mobile users, that it actually is a separate platform and that you could theoretically make content strictly for tablets or, uh, you know, separate from mobile as a separate category and actually make some money and that it's a growing and a growing market. So that's when I started, that was about a year ago. So that's where I started looking at tablets as a separate platform in addition to mobile. Do you think other forms of entertainment like music, film and TV should be more interactive like video games? I mean, not really. You know, like every people still want to watch movies the way they've watched movies for you know a hundred years. I mean, it's a linear, it's a linear form. So I don't really see adding interactivity to music and movies as some sort of you know it's not even a new idea. I mean, every ten years they try to come up with so-called interactive movies, and you know, uh, I don't know. I think there's still people still want to consume music and movies. They might not want to pay for them <laughs> you know or they might not want to sit in the movie theater and and watch them uh they might want to watch them on their own time and on the device of their choosing but uh i don't think that uh you necessarily have to add interactivity to to music and movies to to, to survive what's your favorite and least favorite buzzword um i don't know you know there's, there's one there's one buzzword that drives game developers bonkers which is of course gamification um, and that, you know, it's kind of become this super hot buzzword now, but I mean, I was hearing it five years ago when I started checking out social gaming conferences and stuff, which is the usage of game mechanics to drive user engagement on non-game websites. And, you know, it doesn't, it's not like it doesn't exist. It works, but it just seems to me that a lot of people are trying to claim that they can use 
badges and gaming incentives to get people to do anything. And if it was that easy, then, I mean, you know, I'd be running my own cult right now, just handing people, you know, achievements for following me around. I mean, it's not human psychology. I don't think is that easy. Uh, you know, that, if, if it was that easy, you wouldn't need marketing, you know? So it, it works, but it's getting to the, the, this point of being hyped in every avenue that I'm looking at that it's getting kind of obnoxious. What are some of the most ridiculous examples? I mean, I can't, I can't, I don't know. I mean, I can't say that there's a ridiculous example of it. I just, uh, the, the funniest one is like, if you look at Cow Clicker, uh, Ian, the guy who made Cow Clicker, made a gamification platform. Cow Clicker was a satire of social games. You did nothing but clicked on cows and had your friends click on cows. And, you know, you did absolutely nothing but click on cows. It was kind of a statement on social games and their sort of, you know, perce his perception of them as being kind of Skinner boxes. So he made a, uh, cowification platform that was a satire of gamification where you could embed cow clicking mechanics into any website to drive user engagement which was i mean it was a joke i mean it was satire what are the cliche ways that mess up in your field well this environment's weird because you kind of have there's kind of a war going on right now with game development although i think it's being won by one side uh or the other i guess but Basically, there's a war going on between, I guess you could call them classical game developers and social game developers, and of course, free-to-play game developers, kind of, if you want to add them to that, that side, because classical game developers, let's say console game developers, like people who make games like Xbox 360 and stuff, they accuse companies of Zynga and, uh, you know, companies like Zynga, et cetera, of making games that aren't based on fun or mechanics, but that are based on compulsion, that they're just making, you know, they're using like addiction engineering to just make thinly veiled Skinner boxes that just, you know, have people clicking on mice to get, you know, little virtual treats at uh, random reinforcement schedules. And the thing about it is, is that I, I still think that the free-to-play and the social gaming economies are kind of proving a model for how people want to consume content. And it doesn't mean that you have to make a game exactly like Zynga's to succeed with that. And I think that a lot of guys are missing out on a lot of revenue they could be making by applying the knowledge that they have making games uh, as, they, as the contract used to be. And, and the contract, I mean, is there used to be a contract between the game developer and the player where, you know, you give me 60 bucks and I give you a box with 10, with 10 hours of fun in it, like whether that's a cartridge or a CD-ROM or a DVD with a game on it. And now the, it seems the contract with the player in the social gaming era is this game is free, but it's a miserable hamster wheel and uh, you're going to pay me 99 cents to make that hamster wheel spin faster for like 10 minutes. And then it's going to stop. Then you're going to pay me another 99 cents. And I think you can – and so a lot of classical game developers are diametrically opposed to making games that use that business model. But I think that you can apply the themes of core gaming or whatever you might call it to – the monetization methods of free-to-play and social games would be successful. And it, 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 and it might actually, doing it the old way is going to become kind of a detriment. And a lot of studios, I think, are, are not going to be able to adapt to that kind of economy. Not that every single game needs to be free-to-play or social, but, uh, you know, why start a studio with the wind, you know, heading into the wind with an obstacle? You, you know, try to, try to figure out how to ride this... This, this, this wave in monetization for your benefit. How obvious is this iceberg? I mean, it's super obvious. I mean, now it is. Like, 
three, four years ago, I mean, I was really into virtual goods and all this stuff because I could kind of see the trend. I mean, it started in Korea, but to be honest, you know, people bring up Nexon as the original creators of uh, free-to-play games in like 1997 or so in Korea. But, you know, it's people out here have been experimenting with it too because in 1997, I remember I went on a job interview at a company called Genetic Anomalies that made a game called Cron X, which was like a Magic the Gathering style card game where you bought packs of cards for microtransactions and <clears throat> you played this card game like Magic the Gathering online. You had to keep buying cards. And I remember visiting them. They were in Boston and just thinking, like, I had never seen anything like it. And I was just, wow, this is an amazing business model. This, these guys really have something going on. But then THQ bought them and they kind of didn't really go anywhere. So for over 10 years, microtransactions have been around, but the past five years has been, you know, blatantly obvious. If you look at how much money companies like Nexon are making on games that are pretty hardcore, and of course, companies like Zynga are making on games that are relatively casual. Um, and then if you look at the iPhone app store, and if you look at the top grossing charts, you know, way over half, like 60 to 70% of the top grossing apps are free to play games or games or apps with microtransactions. So, I mean, it's, it's blatantly obvious that this is how users want to consume content. And uh, I think that, uh, especially now, I mean, three, four years ago, maybe not so much. Are people losing jobs because of this uh, pivot? Um, well, it's weird. You know, you see a lot of console companies laying off development teams who make uh, core games or I don't know what they call paid games, you know, classical games. And then investing in a lot of social gaming companies in San Francisco and stuff. But it just seems weird. Like, it's not really that necessary, at least for the engineering and art talent. They can build games on any platform, really. Uh, maybe product management-wise, you know, I've, I've bumped into a lot of people that just can't adapt. You know, it's a weird... Making a game as a service is definitely a weird way to go about it versus putting a game in a box and forgetting about it. But again, this trend has been going on for so long that I think by now most people have... I would assume have caught on to it. So I don't know if you look at the crazy recruitment frenzy in social games and how much money people are getting for salaries as engineers on teams that build social games and stuff. I don't think people are losing their jobs. I think it's a pretty healthy job market for game developers right now. Is there a happy medium between social games and classic games for the tablet? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that, uh, so there's a new, trend going on where companies that are claiming they're making mid-core or hardcore games for tablets and mobile and Facebook using social game economies to apply to games that, you know, like I say, games that you actually have to play. Because I mean, I don't really consider most social games games you actually have to play. You just kind of have to click on stuff and wait, click on stuff and wait, which, you know, no disrespect to those types of games. It's just that's the type of game they are. But uh, if you look at League of Legends, for instance, which is a PC free-to-play game, you know, they made a game that's kind of like a real-time strategy game that you actually have to play. You actually have to be good at, and you actually have to pay attention, and you play maybe a 20-minute round. And they've been able to monetize very well by selling virtual goods, but they do it in a different way. Uh, their users seem to monetize differently than the casual users that uh, Zynga and those types of companies go after. Can you turn a casual gamer into a core gamer? Well, I think that from a lot of the research that I've done... There's kind of this, there's like, there's a core social gamer that's not necessarily 
what you would call a core game or let's say in a console game uh, situation. Like they're not playing Call of Duty like these people who play Call of Duty for hours and hours and hours and hours do on console, but they're playing games like Kingdoms of Camelot or something on Facebook with the same fervor that a Call of Duty fan would be. So I think that, especially for a generation of people that have grown up in the web game era, you know, for them, you know, their Sega Genesis or PlayStation was Nickelodeon.com or Miniclip or something. And so they've taken their hardcore gamers of the next generation, but they want their content delivered to them on on platforms that they live on and monetize the way they're used to paying for stuff. So it's not it's not necessarily about converting a a casual gamer to a core gamer, but it's there are core gamers. They're just growing up in a different environment and their content that they're consuming is uh on a different platform. But they're they're kind of like consumption patterns kind of similar because they're really big gamers. They spend a lot of time and a lot of money on the games that they like. Are they playing it on a computer or are they playing it on an iPad? Well, well, I mean, tablet adoption is still pretty low. Uh, You'd see smartphone adoption is is pretty good, but I still think the smartphone market can double at least in the next year or so because there's still a lot of people that don't have smartphones. So they are playing them on all sorts of platforms. I personally prefer to develop from mobile platforms because I think, you know, the user acquisition is, in my opinion, cheaper and easier on mobile even though it's still tricky. Whereas on Facebook, you've got, you know, companies like Zynga and Digital Chocolate and stuff that are spending just tons of money acquiring users and it's driving up the user acquisition costs because they're fighting over kind of the same pool of, of, of gamers and they're all, you know, it's ratcheting up the user acquisition price. But, you know, they're, I think mobile, especially in the West, is increasingly dominant. But, if, but when you're delivering a game on mobile and on social platforms, you kind of have to think worldwide. And so when you go to places like Poland and Turkey, where you can make a lot of money, they're not even on Facebook necessarily. So you have to think about, if you want a worldwide strategy, where these gamers are going to be worldwide. And culturally, core gamers are on different platforms in all different parts of the world. If you ran a dream company, what would be your strategy going into the future? Well, I mean, I like being on as many platforms as possible, but I still think that you need to focus on – you need to start on one platform and nail it. And, you know, because the monetization patterns and stuff of users differ from platform to platform. So if you start just like, oh, I'm going to be everywhere at once with one game, I think you're kind of setting yourself up for failure. But uh, I personally like mobile. Um the best for various reasons. I think it's, I think the monetization path is smoother for users. And uh, I just, I happen to like, I happen to like the platform and I kind of have to develop games that I'm personally interested in because otherwise it's just not going to go well. So, you know, uh, I would start with whatever platform you, you want to start on. Although personally, I think Facebook is kind of like, I I wouldn't start there. I think user acquisition costs are too high. uh, And I think mobile consumption, especially in the West is, is, is growing so much that you really want to start on mobile right now. And uh, I like to apply cross platform approach by using technologies like unity 3d to let you build an Android and iPhone version with pretty much the same build. But, um, and then from there, if it works and if it monetizes, then especially if you're using a technology that's cross-platform like that, you can bring it to social networks and you can bring it to web portals and stuff later. But I kind of I kind of recommend starting on one platform and just nailing that platform, which, whichever one you choose, except I really think it's smart to choose mobile. As an entrepreneur, tell me a mistake you learned from. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, so 
a couple years ago, I mean, and it's it's still up. I made this, uh, I guess you could call it a web. This was basically when I had the revelation about, hey, maybe I should be making games on the web and on social networks. I built kind of like a co-op, I don't want to call it an MMO, but I kind of call it an MMO dungeon hack called Brave Balls at braveballs.com. Although I think the new user registration thing is down. I probably should fix it before this podcast goes up. But um, that game was a game that I built because really I wanted to transition from being a mobile developer to being, to learning, you know, web game development skills. But I also, you know, I had this big game in mind and I also had no real external pressure to deliver it because I was using, I was bootstrapping and I had a bunch of income coming from my mobile games and stuff. And I just kind of had like this big project and I just kept working on it and working on it and working on it. And people were like, you know, and I, and I made money on, I licensed the uh, technology out to other developers. But as far as the game is concerned, you know, I just kept working on it and working on it. You know, people would tell me, you know, what are you doing? Why don't you just get this game out? And oh, I can't do that. You know, it's not done yet. You know, I need to finish this feature. I need to finish that feature. But the fact of the matter is I spent a ton of time building a game that nobody really wanted to play, you know? And uh, I think that today you can figure out whether people want your content, want to pay for it, and want to play it much quicker with much less risk. And the way to go, the way I go about things now is instead of like creating this monolithic project and just building on it and just like, you know, charging forth until it's quote done, end quote. Uh, you could build. You you could, first you could do a couple of things. One of them is you can test demand for your game or for whatever you're doing before you even make it. You can use different techniques, like you can survey users on Amazon Mechanical Turk and Survey Monkey, where you can kind of like, if you craft a decent survey, you can kind of find out where consumers are at, what kind of stuff they want to pay for. I mean, it's not perfect, but it gives you a little bit of insight into maybe you know whether you're approaching or trying to solve the right problem with your product. And then um, you can even do things. I mean, I didn't invent this. This is all kind of lean startup stuff, but you can use landing page analysis where you make a bunch of, you know, fake landing pages for games you're thinking of making with a mock-up screenshot and a logo, and you, you buy a bunch of traffic, and you see which one gets the most signups. You know, there's kind of ways to detect whether the public's going to react to the IP beforehand. And then when you're building it, you know, there's no need to build the whole game. Build a core set of features, you know, polish them, and then put them out, and then see if you can monetize, see if you get users in the first place, see if you can monetize those users. And if you can't, you know, there's no sacred cows, kill it, try something else. You can repurpose the technology later. But uh, I'm totally against like just developing these giant massive projects that go on and on and on and on and on and on. Although I will say that, you know, the whole lean startup thing, I think a lot of people are kind of, uh, I would say giving up too early. You know, they're just like, oh, I'm just gonna put this thing out there and throw it out there, and then oh, people didn't like it, so I'm not going to, I'm not gonna develop it any further. But I mean, with games, you kind of, I mean, the game still has to be good. It still has to be polished, and that does require a little bit amount of time. But there's no need to just focus on building all kinds of features that you don't know people are gonna want to use. Because even if people like your game, you might find out that they're playing. Uh, a certain part of it more or they're consuming certain types of items more than you thought and then you can go make more of what people want instead of uh, uh, it might take you in a direction you didn't even think about when you were designing it without any feedback from the public whatsoever if you had that knowledge while working on that game what would have happened the thing is is you gotta plan for that at the beginning so I mean the game was never really designed in chunks uh, I used to, I used to, when I was doing the feature phone mobile games, like I knew I pretty much had to develop a game in three months. So I always kind of developed like a three month plan and I always had 
a bunch of concentric circles. Like I had the core game, I wanted a ship, I had the features on the outer ring that were pretty good that I'd like to include, and then I had like the purely wish list features I probably would never would do, but they'd be nice to have. But this approach has to change, you know, I had to change it for this type of stuff because basically you want to have what you believe to be the core features of your game that you, you want to test to see if people like and develop the game in such a way that you can kind of finish those features to a point where they're playable and you can put it out there in a polished manner and have people uh, play it and, and see if they like it. Whereas when I was developing that game before, you know, I never really finished any one given feature. It was just kind of, I had this huge shopping list of features and when I got sick of working on one, I work on another one and instead you need to have like a laser focus on the set of features you're going to deliver and you know you can kind of create a, a path that you think you're going to go on of features that you might like to implement but i think you got to settle on a real core of the game and 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 develop that i had a you know my approach was just too broad it was like i had too much at this giant plan and uh you know no actual i hadn't had it broken it down into sprints or whatever you want to call it in agile terminology do you think you could take these uh, techniques and apply them to the rest of the entertainment industry beyond games? Well, it's kind of weird. I mean, you know, I don't know if you could develop like a movie that way. I mean, you can't make like half of a movie and throw it out there. You know, and even if you're doing a TV show, I mean, I don't know. Like you still have to – people have to watch the show for a while and understand the characters and stuff. So I'm not quite sure that you can – you can take a TV show or a movie and cut it down into little bite-sized chunks and then dribble and drabble it out there and see if people like it. I mean, I suppose you could do, you know, viral videos or something and see if there's a reaction to the theme you're trying to put out there. Um, but I don't know if you could take it that literally, uh, the, the sort of lean startup approach and apply it to, to movies. But I mean, maybe you can. I mean, making movies and TV shows really isn't my area of expertise. How do you stay competitive? Well, you know, I just, I try to talk to a lot of people. I try to see what they're doing and, you know, it's, I, I kind of try to, I don't know, you know, I, people used to joke cause I used to go to so many conferences, you know, now of course you can't get any actual work done if you're always going to dumb conferences every day. So I wasn't exactly the most productive person at the time, but I went to just like every conference I could find and like, you know, I was trying to figure out where stuff was going and I went to, I don't remember what it was called. It was called Internex or something. It was like the very first social gaming conference before they had the social gaming summit. I think Cassie Phillips put out a did a conference in like 2007, and that was like the very very first social gaming conference, and it was very interesting. You know, like Mark Pincus was there when you know he had only raised like 10 million dollars and he was just starting, and it was cool. And I, you know, at that time, you know, it was a wasn't that many people there. I don't remember they even 100 people there, 200 people there, all talking about social games in 2007. You know, and then I would go back, talk to my friends back here. You know, in LA is kind of like the classic game industry. It was kind of like the epicenter of that, at least, you know, for a while. And they're just like, you know, Facebook games, what are you talking about? So when I get that much resistance to an idea, I know it's probably a pretty good idea because I could see the trend from going to a lot of these conferences and, you know, that not many people knew about at the time and, and, and talking to a lot of people who are in that industry and working on interesting things and then trying to contrast it with the sentiments of people that I knew that were like, you know, industry veterans or whatever. And you can kind of figure out what the next thing is. I mean... I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to make any money. I mean, you can find out what the next trend is in startups or whatever the case may be. Uh, but I don't know. So, basi so basically you're saying that if you hear the old veterans in the field complaining, like basically invest in that direction. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like, 
one of the hints that it's kind of disruptive. You know, it's uh, a lot of the whining and complaining going on. And I hear a lot of complaining about free to play and a lot of complaining about uh, social games. And I've been hearing it, you know, for five years now. And that's how I knew that, well, this is significant in some way. Can the storytelling style from films apply to video games? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's, there's, um, like, for instance, I mean, I'm not a huge story and games guy myself, but that's just me. But there are games with stories that I love. And I, I'd say probably the best guys in the business at doing stories and games is Bioware. Uh, they, I mean, if you look at Mass Effect, which, you know, has a really amazing game story because it's dynamic. It's not just like they didn't hire some Hollywood writer to just write a script and then break it up into five chunks, and then stick the cinematics in between levels. And they've been, you know, Bioware has been doing this for a long time with, you know, Baldur's Gate and all those games, but they've, they have really great writing, but they also have great technology to make the, the story dynamic and you're able to travel different paths in the game, and it's not just like some choose-your-own-adventure book. And they even apply that recently to to the MMO space with their Star Wars, uh, the Old Republic MMO, which has like a ridiculous amount of scripted content in an MMO, where previously in, in an MMO game, you just go to a character and he'd say, oh, kill me five rats, and, I'll, and if you come back, I'll give you a wineskin. And they flipped it in a completely different way. It's a little early to see how successful they're going to be with that because it just launched like a month ago. But yeah, it's definitely a place for story in games. It just depends on the kind of game. Ralph, it's time for your plugs. Uh, I mean, you know, I've, I've got nothing public I could talk about right now. But if you go to ralphbarbagallo.com or flarb.com, you can kind of see what I'm up to. And, uh, you know, I'm just doing some right now. I'm doing some consulting and stuff like that on programming and deployment and uh, even even, you know, business model design of people's games and stuff like that but you know i am working on some new stuff i'm just not ready to talk about it yet all right so it's top secret but anyhow thanks yeah. for coming on hollywood 2.0 and uh i will talk to you later all right cool talk to you later thanks for listening to another episode of hollywood 2.0 you can check me out at peter katz k-a-t-z.net email me at katz k-a-t-z films at gmail.com i want to hear your feedback i want to talk and you could Reach my co-host, Rich Silverman, at richsilverman.com.